please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's episode is very timely. We have been talking in the past few weeks about uh, the implications of a change in leadership in the United States, uh, certainly in the executive congressional and uh, and congressional branches and probably in the judicial branches as well. And the implications of these very monumental changes will have ramifications on archaeology, on historic preservation, and on cultural resource management. Uh, we don't know exactly what they are, but they show certainly all sorts of hints of being significant. Um, there is a certain measure of complexity here, as many of you know, who have been involved in or have been following governmental affairs. Things can change. They don't normally change at a very rapid pace. There seems to be a an impetus to do that, but as the incoming Congress and the incoming president will soon find out, these things cannot always work quite as quickly as they can. However, we can talk a little bit about what the sort of theoretical and long-term view of uh, the present administration may or may not be. We have a uh, representative trade organization called the American Cultural Resources Association that has been dealing with this situation and has been addressing it, and one of our programs previously has addressed that particular element of it and looked at their vision for what may happen. But for today, we are including another uh, segment on that uh, topic and the perspective that we are aiming for and that we will be following today comes from a very experienced governmental archaeologist, my guest and and very esteemed colleague and somebody whom I have been working with certainly over the past few years intensively on another project is Dr. Kimball Banks. Dr. Banks has extensive Uh, experience both in the private sector and we've talked about what that means. We'll continue to talk about those topics, but most specifically he has extensive experience in the various 
aspects and the various agencies that undertake uh, governmental archaeology and regulate them as well. Uh, Dr. Banks uh, has a PhD from Southern Methodist University and has worked uh, for the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Bureau of Reclamation. And uh, my objective today is to have Kimball Banks discuss the various uh, responsibilities, compliance elements, and uh, investigative uh, responsibilities of the various segments of the government agencies and what they're responsible for and what their domains generally are. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Clint Kimball Banks. Kimball, thanks for appearing on the program. Thank you, Joseph. I'm glad to be here. So, Kimball, why don't you give us sort of a general overview of uh, the 106 process? Most of the listenership knows certainly about the nuts and bolts of 106, but how it sort of gets parsed out in terms of the various governmental agencies and just sort of give us an overall perspective on what government archaeology is all about. Well, Section 106 requires any federal agent or all federal agencies to consider the uh, impacts of their activities, be they uh, contracts, uh, programs, construction projects, and things like that, on uh, historic properties. Um, and historic properties are, are cultural resources that have been declared or are on the National Register of Historic Places. Um, they do that, they consider those impacts in consultation with state historic preservation officers. Each state has one. Uh, tribal historic preservation officers, um, not all tribes have uh, tribal historic preservation officers, but many are do or are established in that program. And uh, if need be, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. They're also supposed to take in the concerns of the public in general and any interested parties um, that may be involved or, or uh, interested groups. That's it in a nutshell. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into it any deeper than that, but, but that's the crux of it. Section 106 is just one very short paragraph in a very extensive law, the National Historic Preservation Act, but it's probably probably has the most far-reaching effect um, of the National Historic Preservation Act in terms of its effect on the federal government, uh, state governments, and the public in general. So we have talked in earlier segments about how Section 106 evolved, basically tracking its roots from the Antiquities Act back in the early days of the 20th century and certainly the roles that people like Teddy Roosevelt played in uh, nationalizing the parks, uh, setting up the National Park Service, uh, providing protection for known archaeological sites. And uh, I think a lot of people understand that the governmental bureaucracy has certainly mushroomed over the past hundred years and going into the 21st century. Uh, what about the divisions of the um, government in terms of who's responsible for what types of projects. If you could give us a little bit of focus on that, because people hear things like, well, this is a project that's under the purview of the Wild Fish and Wildlife Service. The other one is from the Bureau of Reclamation. There was also a responsibility for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And I know you have a lot of experience with these agencies. Just try to put that in some kind of perspective for us. Well, um, 
Each agency has its mission, and that mission is defined in what we call its Organic Act, the legislation that created that particular agency. And the mission of, of every agency differs from every other agency. Some agencies overlap somewhat. For instance, the agency I work for, Bureau of Reclamation, um, was in charge of, of the construction and management of dams and reservoirs, uh, similar to the Corps of Engineers. Uh, but whereas the Corps throughout the you know operates throughout the United States, the Bureau of Reclamation was only active in the seven or is only active in the seventeen western states. Um, and the agency then each agency uh, defines how it responds to or how it's going to co- comply with cultural resource in their in their agency manuals. And each agency, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, gets to define that. Um, usually without much public input. Um, the problem is, or and often it is a problem, is the agency gets in, in the 106 process, the agency gets to define um, the extent of the undertaking, okay, and its responsibilities with that undertaking, uh, usually geographically. Uh, and so there's a lot of variation between agencies in terms of how they comply with, with Section 106. It depends upon their mission and then how they def- go about defining undertakings and the, the area of effects of those undertakings. I'd like to add that, that the National Historic Preservation Act has been, since it was passed in 1966, has been um, altered 11, 11 times, four of which were major alterations. Um, and that is, it's only increased its extent and effectiveness uh, for protecting cultural resources. One of the things that we've talked about a lot, and uh, I think it's a topic that we need to reiterate because uh, especially in this day and age when a lot of us are feeling certainly in terms of a gut reaction that uh, the program may be gutted or that uh, there will be less and less uh, impetus attached to undertaking and implementing Section 106, I, I think what's really interesting and important here is to identify the, uh, the nature of the, uh, of the law and to emphasize the fact that, uh, and we've, uh, most of us who are in this sort of this first wave of, of uh, archaeologists who grew up with Section 106, I think one of the main points that we have to emphasize is uh, there seems to be a gut reaction um, amongst a lot of people that, uh, well, if an archaeological site is in, the, uh, is in the way of construction, then that will halt construction. And of course, that's really not the case. The Section 106 process is largely a function, uh, largely has as its mission the purpose to reach compromises amongst competing right. groups, stakeholders, and, uh, and the government regulatory yeah. operation itself. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that well, and, and the dispel law, the, the law ideas. was never intended to, to block projects. And that's all important. The law, all the, the law does is, is says federal agencies have to take into consideration. It means they have to consider the effects on historic properties. And the law and its implementing regulations at 36 CFR 800 um, offer a variety of ways of taking into consideration uh, historic properties and minimizing effects of, of 
projects on those historic properties. It doesn't mean that just because a, a site or historic property is in the way means that the project has to stop. And, and in terms of historic properties, not all cultural resources are qualify as historic properties. There um, are four criteria by which a, a, a cultural resource, be it prehistoric or historic or architectural, uh, are considered a historic property. And like I say, only historic properties, those that are uh, included in or have been determined eligible to National Register, um, are considered under the under uh, National Historic Preservation Act. So the law, like I say, the law was never intended to stop projects. It's a consultative process. That's all it is. And provided that the the federal agency follows the law, even if SHPO's or the advisory council disagrees, they can go ahead and, and implement that project. That's uh, that's a critical point, and, and as I think both you and I know, because we've been sort of at the back end of this sort of thing, um, when people simply come up to us over the course of a project and say, well, you know, archaeology is in the way here. There's a big site here. You can't build here. And, of course, the uh, spirit of compromising and the spirit of reaching mutual agreements mandates that essentially the most important thing to do is to reach uh, a, comp- a compromise and to undertake either rerouting in many cases or uh, mitigation, site mitigation. And you had mentioned something that's really important in terms of Section 106 and 36 CFR 800. And why don't you tell us a little bit about those criteria, because uh, the four criteria, because in more, as I was reviewing this, uh, the top, the background material for this talk, we really never got into identifying what the criteria are. And I think that was a shortcoming in uh, various <laughs> uh, previous talks that we've had about the topic. And we've done a number of them. Let's talk about those criteria. Well, the criteria also, um, they're codified in the CFRs at 36 CFR 63, I believe, and there's four right. criteria. One of them is it's related to a per- person important in prehistory or an event. Another is it's it's symbolic of a, of a certain style or whatever. That's generally architectural. Your ear getting me off my, I've, I've kind of forgotten what the third one is, but the fourth one and the one that most deals with archaeology is that um, it's potential to yield information important in, in history or prehistory. Right. So, you know, a resource, a site, whether it be a site, a building, a district, um, an object or a structure, has to satisfy one or more of those criteria. And it has to have uh, the quality, satisfy the quality of integrity, and there are seven different qualities of integrity. So it's not just satisfying the criteria, but it has to also have that integrity. And if, if during consultation the agency determines that, yes, these or recommends that these are quali- or a resource qualifies as a historic property, and the SHPO agrees, then you have to take the, the agency then has to take the consider the effects of their activity on that historic property. And they go through the consult, and that's done in consultation with the SHPO and, in many instances, tribes or, or THPOs. THPOs um, have primacy over lands within their reservation boundaries. Uh, SHPO generally does not have, um, when they have a certified THPO program, uh, the SHPO's out of it. it all, everything goes to the THPO. And that has to do with the issue of sovereignty of Indian tribes. 
So, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly narrow. You can't just say a site is, you know, is, qualifies as a historic property. You have to uh, document why it does. And in my experience, that's one of the things that a lot of archaeologists and people in the, in the CRM business fail to do when they're providing reports. Uh, to two federal agencies, it used to frustrate me a lot. I'd get reports saying, "Well, this site's eligible," or "You know, this site's significant." Well, without explaining why it's significant, and so you know, archaeologists and cultural resource personnel have to have to define what is why a site is significant uh, in terms of those four criteria under the regulations. We will be back with our very significant and interesting discussion with Dr. Kimball Banks right after these words. Don't go away. We will be back with you in a few. Why do some people seemingly make the same mistakes when it comes to love and relationships? What is the best way to find love? Make a visit each week to Destination Love. Host Shelley Pumphrey will bring what you need to know to find love. No, it's not about the next fad, dating site tips, scoring the first date, or looking your best. Rather, it's empowerment, knowing that your authentic self works best and the science behind finding love. Destination Love is live Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on Voice America Variety. Where are you getting your advice on buying, selling, or maintaining your most important asset, your home? Is it from a reality show on cable TV, a comparison website, or are you just flying by the seat of your pants and gut instinct? Stop now before you make another move. Tune into Real Real Estate Today with host and realtor Deb Tomorrow. You can't afford to play guesswork when it comes to your new or existing home. Listen every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein back with. Uh, a special installment of Indiana Jones myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology. I say special because we are talking about uh, federal archaeology in the United States, and we are sort of reviewing the baselines and the legislation that is associated with uh, preservation law and archaeology, historic architecture, and all matters related to preservation of our heritage. And um, the reason for this particular program is, as you are all aware, 
there is going to be a change in Washington, D.C. The Congress and the executive branches and uh, the judicial branches probably as well are o- undergoing an overhaul. There is, uh, in certain circles, a moderate degree of panic that our laws will change overnight and that our heritage will disappear. And I think uh, most of us in the professional community are pretty much agreed that that will not happen, certainly in, in as drastic a way as some people are saying, although let's not kid ourselves, there uh, there is probably going to be some sort of an assault on heritage. But in any case, when in advance of that and what may or may not transpire, we are reviewing what the guidelines and the laws of the federal compliance to uh, historic preservation are. Uh, my guest is Kimball Banks, and Kimball is going to refresh us and identify the four criteria that qualify a property for being significant under Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. Kimball, why don't you review that for us? Yeah. Uh, well. Well, the criteria are contained in the CFR 30, 36 CFR 60.4, okay? And I'm just going to read it for you because that's better than me explaining it. So the quality of significance in American history, architecture, archaeology, engineering, and culture is present in district sites, buildings, structures, and objects that possess integrity of location, design, setting, materials, workmanship, feeling, and association, and A, that are associated with events that may have made a significant contribution to the broad patterns of our history, or B, that are associated with the lives of persons significant in our past, or C, that embody distinctive characteristics of a type period or method of construction, or that represent the work of a master, or that possess high artistic values, or that represent a significant and distinguishable entity whose components may lack individual distinction, or D, that of yield or may likely be likely yield be likely to yield information important in prehistory or history. So you have four criteria, then you have have the qualities of, of integrity. And for a resource to qualify as a historic property, it has to have integrity and then satisfy one or more of those four criteria, A, B, C, or D. Okay. Um, in that connection, we also have other elements of the compliance process and specifically there is the crossover between the federal regulatory agencies which we discussed before there are obviously different agency agencies associated with different uh, charges uh, in the federal government we did review that however there is also the entry into consent uh, related and consenting parties there are stakeholders of course and there are also the the regulatory agencies represented by the state and by the various states rather and the tribal councils associated with the uh, formally defined tribal groupings in the United States. Why don't you give us a little description of the matrix between the federal government and uh, related agencies uh, vis-a-vis their domains and how they interact? Well, like I say, the federal the federal government or the federal agency is a decision maker in this. Okay, but he has, the agency has to consult with either the SHPO or if on a re, the projects on a reservation, the THPO, the Tribal Historic Preservation Office, and if, if depending on the nature of the project, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Now, the SHPO or the the federal agency can request that the Advisory Council participate. 
Um, and as, as we've said, it's a consultative process. Uh, other other party interested parties can request to be involved, or or the um, federal agency can go out and seek input from these other parties, depending upon the nature of the project. Um, for instance, in a lot of oil and gas developments where they're entering into a programmatic agreement, which covers a wide variety of activities, um, they'll often seek input from professional organizations, um, conservation groups, and things like that, um, and also tribes in general as well. So, right. the broad, you, you, depending on the nature of the project, there's you know, there can be a, a whole variety of stakeholders involved in the consultation process. Uh, usually, it's it, it, the more complex the problem or the, the greater the geographic spread, the more stakeholders you're going to have involved in that consultative process. What happens like in the... Say, yeah, go ahead. Let me please. say one more thing, that the, that the recent amendments to the NHP have, have now tied compliance with NHP with uh, compliance in the NEPA process. And to a ext- certain extent, since federal agencies also have to comply with NEPA for, for many of the same projects, it streamlines both, uh, both avenues of compliance. In Why don't you words, tell they, us a little they, bit about NEPA? Uh, well, NEPA is another law that's it's, it's a consultative law. Um, it was passed four years after the National Historic Preservation Act, and it's the National Environmental Policy Act. In other words, it's, a, it's not a National Environmental Protection Act, it's policy. And again, it's a procedural act. It requires a, the federal agency to take into account the effects of their activities or their projects on both the natural and human environment. Um, historically, more laws deal with a natural environment, than, or I, I would say more laws deal with a natural environment than, uh, or protection of the natural environment than they do with the human environment. So uh, emphasis in a lot of, of environmental documents is on the natural environment. And I think part of one of the reasons that they tied um, the, the uh, amendments to the National Historic Preservation Act directly tied compliance with 106 with... Uh, the NEPA process was to strengthen or provide greater input on protection of or consideration of the human environment. Right. There are other there are other executive actions that deal with the human environment, such as the EO that, that addresses um, environmental justice uh, impacts to low or or minority low income or minority communities. Do we ever but, have you know yeah, many of the same players under NHPA are also players under the NEPA process. Um, usually, the SHPO has sent a copies of the NEPA of a NEPA document to comment upon, and, and as are tribes and THPOs and many and many of the same stakeholders are involved in, in uh, under NEPA as they would be under 106. What happens in areas of conflict, say, between a state historic preservation office and a federal regulatory agency? Uh, Normally, my experience has been that they sort these things out, but what happens if they can't? And what happens if stakeholders basically are saying, well, we don't agree with this particular perspective? How do these types of situations normally get resolved? Well, oftentimes they don't. Um, like I say, as long as a federal agency complies with the law and documents everything, their compliance activities, 
um, and they're within the, the, as the law is structured, um, even though the SHPO may disagree or the THPAO may, may disagree, the agency can go ahead with that project. Um, where agencies get in trouble is when they don't follow the law. You know, they, they either bring a party in late into the consultation process. Um, there are certain time frames in, that, in the process, the consultation process, if the federal agency foregoes those time frames and doesn't allow mm-hmm. the consulta- consulting parties sufficient time, things like that. It's, it's when the agency doesn't comply with, you know, the, the, the structures of the law, that's when they get in trouble. Um, the best thing to do, you know, in resolving conflicts is just, you know, consult, consult, consult until you can right. reach an agreement. And is that the normal state of affairs? Uh, most often because, you know, then if either either the federal agency or the, the SHPO can, or the THPO can kick it up to the advisory council, and that brings it up to another level of, of discourse. Um, usually, in my experience, we like to, or I've always liked to resolve issues at the ground level, you know, at the local level. All politics are local, so try and resolve it at the local level. In other words, it's 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 normally advisable to keep it down at the basic level instead of ratcheting right. it up to another authority right. or to another stat. Right, right. I understand that. And um, my experience certainly has been that in most cases, these situations do tend to resolve themselves. Um, There certainly seems to be a lot more attention paid to stakeholders in the past 20 years than there used to be. And we'll get into that in our next segment, discussing um, various other federal laws that relate to specific elements of the regulatory process and to specific domains that have have emerged as a result of of development and as a result of more conscientious pursuit of, shall we say, stakeholder interests, and uh, certainly in the case of the federal uh, state of uh, case of Native Americans, uh, allowing them a significant and increasingly important role in determining issues that affect both their lands and their spiritual beliefs. We'll be back with uh, our next segment right after these words. Don't go away. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Our program today is examining aspects of the federal historic preservation program covered typically and most comprehensively by Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act. My guest is Dr. Kimball Banks, who has a long history of involvement and participation in federal archaeology and related programs and has been involved to a large degree in fashioning and uh, implementing legislative strictures associated with various properties. We were talking, Kimball, as we went to break, about the increased role and the increased awareness of Native American groups in federal properties that relate to them and in particular spiritual and ceremonial and mortuary trends that uh, have uh, obviously taken center stage over the past 20 years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the development of Native American archaeology and legislation as it pertains to that particular segment of our population? Well, I guess it goes back to the late 70s when they they passed the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. That kind of brought to the fore Native American concerns um, and their ability to practice their traditional religions. Um, It's always been a bone of contention between archaeologists and and, uh, Native Americans, particularly with relative to um, human remains and uh, sacred objects. Uh-huh. Um, the protections I, I would be, I would guess, or I would say that that the the protection of these objects um, really became a legis- or was became legislation with passage of the Archaeological Resources Protection Act. Um, that act, uh, one clause in that act specified that on on reservations, at least on trust lands, individual Indian landowners and or the tribe own the cultural resources um, on those lands and that anybody coming in there to excavate needed a permit and the tribe and or the individual Indian landowner had to, do, to uh, agree to that permit. In other words, they were a signatory to that permit. So that mm-hmm. gave tribes and individual Indians a lot of control over uh, resources within their within the res- reservation boundaries. Um, it was basically an outgrowth of the Antiquities Act because the, there had been a number of prosecutions to try for pot hunting tried under the Antiquities Act, and they they failed. Um, it was too weak a law. So they passed the Antiquities or the Archaeological Resource Protection Act to to give greater uh, ability to prosecute uh, um, uh, pot hunting. Um, 
it assigned both civil and criminal penalties to uh, illegal collecting of artifacts. Basically, illegal collecting meant that you were you could not collect on federal lands without a permit, and that that was the hook that got into uh, Indian lands. So that act recognized that uh, Indians controlled the resources within their lands, okay? Mm -hmm. Still didn't address the issue of sacred objects and human remains that were under control or in possession of the federal government. Um, That issue was addressed in NAGPRA in the 90s. And basically NAGPRA said that... um, Collections under the control, uh, human remains and sacred objects under control or ownership of federal agencies had to be returned to the appropriate tribe, um, and there was a long identification process that goes into that. And then that um, human remains uh, discovered on on Indian lands or federal lands, um, tribes would be involved in the consultative process in, in terms of what to do with those remains. So it's it's been extended somewhat um, to non-federal lands, um, although the, the law was aimed at, at federal lands and federal, you know, federal property. But it has been or attempted to be applied to non-federal lands as well. But increasingly, tribes are more coming more and more to the fore in, in, in managing or having a say in, their, direct say in the management of, of their heritage, you know, their heritage, their cultural resources. Um, the ninety, the I think it was the 1997 amendments to NHPA established a tribal historic preservation program, uh, which is administered. It's a grant program administered by the the Park Service, the same way the SHPO program is. And tribes could apply for uh, THPO status, and that um, took. If a tribe established a THPO program, then they, the SHPO uh, only had the SHPO involvement on, on projects on reservation lands only extended as far as a tribe would allow that. The THPO would allow them to, to participate. Um, in North Dakota, for instance, um, one reservation, they took all the records from the State, Historic Preserva- or the State Historical Society and uh, you know they're they're autonomous. On another reservation, they share their their data and their reports with the with the state the state historical society, so, and they're often asked the SHPO to participate in consultation there. So it varies from tribe to tribe, from THPO office to THPO office, and increasingly tribes are you know applying for that program. The problem is the is it always gets down to finance and funding. So you know, there's the available funding is 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 being divided. The pie, or you know, the available funding for the pie is being, or the slice of the pie is getting smaller and smaller each year as more tribes apply for the for THPO status. Now, how do you get tribal recognition? Is that a uh, difficult process? It's a grant. It's a it's a, a grant process. It's not that difficult. You you know, there's a. a application process you have to go through. You have to show certain, the ability to, to either have or have access to certain um, disciplines. Okay. What about uh, the, as we talked about in the break, the NAGPRA process? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? In terms of? 
in terms of its evolution and the very interesting way in which it developed. I mean, there's this long history of uh, the Smithsonian and archaeologists yeah. in the early part of the 20th century excavating uh, human remains and essentially uh, storing them without doing too much analysis at the Smithsonian-related places, and Native Americans staking a pretty reasonable claim that there's no reason to dig up more bones if, for example, all of those bones have remained un unidentified and unanalyzed. And then, of course, extending that into their own uh, beliefs and uh, pictures. Yeah, it's, it's, well, NAGPRA, it's been an evolution into NAGPRA. I mean, tribal involvement in historic preservation has, has evolved over the years, um, starting in, I would, I would say, in the late 70s. And they're becoming more and more directly involved in it. And I think that's a good thing, personally. Um, after all, you know, these, the, most of the archaeological sites I deal with are, are related to Native Americans. That's their, Heritage that's their ancestors, so of course, um, and they bring a different perspective, which I I think is is healthy for the for the discipline and for um, cultural resource management in general. Um, the NAGPRA process again is is to, that's an identification process. There, the law established certain time frames within which. Um, Collections were to be repatriated. A lot of federal agencies, well, I would say many federal agencies have been dragging their feet, um, identifying the collections, identifying which tribes the collections should be repatriated to. Some agencies are dealing with multiple tribes, and so, you know, if, if their collections are large, then they have to decide which, you know, which remains go to which tribe and all that. It's, it's a consultative process. Um, there is a NAGPRA committee that reviews that um, process. They have to announce it in the Federal Register if they're going to repatriate. Um, and then if there's disputes, those are settled by the NAGPRA committee as well. There's also the issue of unaffiliated remains. There are a lot of remains out there that, that it may be difficult to identify affiliation, although uh, probably with DNA analysis, as that progresses, that'll be become easier and easier. I think the, the, most, the best example of that is the Kennewick case. Of course, yeah. And also, yeah. And I understand just recently there was a, a remains, a Paleo-Indian remains in the Great Basin that they used DNA analysis to, to identify the descendant community. So it's starting to become a bigger part of the regimen, actually. Yeah. yeah. And a guideline. Are we seeing... Uh, Obviously, I think it's a rhetorical question. We're seeing more and more involvement. Is there a federal program that is designed to bring in more and more Native Americans into the archaeology world and into the compliance field? Well, I think, you know, the, that to me is... is could be or should be a responsible of professional organizations such as SAA or, or uh, Plains Anthropological Association. Um, you're seeing more and more native young Native Americans going into college and, and entering into archaeology. Um, mm -hmm. I, I I think that's a good healthy sign. I I think when I started out, I could name one or two that were. There's any number that are out there as archaeologists, and I think that's, I think that's a healthy move as far as the discipline goes, and as far as cultural resource management in, in general goes. I think those will be those individuals will be crucial in terms of 
consulting with tribes, um, they'll be crucial in the future in terms of federal agencies consulting with tribes. A lot of federal agencies now have established Native American affairs specialists or coordinators or whatever that are supposed to serve as liaisons between uh, the agency and um, tribal governments, particularly with with respect to land managing agencies. And a lot of that is not only just because of, of the National Historic Preservation Act and NEPA, but also because of the um, presidents ever since Bush have issued um, either executive orders or presidential memoranda um, addressing consultation with with tribes. Uh, More and more federal agencies are becoming aware of the government-to-government relationship with tribes. It was defined in the Constitution and by Supreme Court decisions, and they're what we call their trust responsibility. In other words, they have responsibility over trust. You know, some agencies have responsibility over resources that have been being held in trust, either by treaty or by court decisions, for tribes. So it's a complex uh, problem. I mean, it's not just one that's limited to the National Historic Preservation Act. It has wide implications government-wide. And that's and certainly that's one, of, one of the more... Yeah. Significant. Yeah, in one of the offices I rec- worked in reclamation, um, our biggest projects were the construction of water systems on reservations, of course. and that was mandated by congressional action. Mm-hmm. And then you get into, I mean, I'm getting a little, a little far afield of cultural resources, but then you get into the Indian Self-Determination Act, which says that tribes can contract uh, for projects that are for their benefit, and they can contract any or all, any or all of a program, and that would include doing the cultural resources. And a lot, a lot of tribes do contract to do the cultural resources under uh, under ninety three six thirty eight under the Indian Self Determination Act. Mm-hmm. We'll be back with our final segment and our discussion on federal archaeology and its implications for the future and developments recently, right after these words don't go away. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know that you're looking for more. You want a more fulfilling life and don't know how to free yourself from the proverbial rut. Tune in to Wake Up and Listen with co-hosts Don Burnett and Dr. Don. With engaging discussion and some fun, too, Don and Dr. Don will help you bring harmony into your life. Improve your relationships, release those fears, and get you unstuck. Wake Up and Listen can be heard live every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and today's discussion centers on federal archaeology. We've been discussing the topic with our guest, Dr. Kimball Banks, who has extensive experience not just in the private sector, but also in the government and compliance sectors in archaeology and historic preservation. Uh, you were talking, Kimball, about the uh, Native American uh, Initiative Act. Is I can't even remember the exact title. What is it? Um, Indian Self-Determination Act. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, again, that's it's an act that, that um, it applies to the Department of Interior and uh, Health and Human Services, and it basically says that any program for the benefit of Indians, a, a tribe can ta- contract for those programs, whether it be a program or a construction project, and they can structure that program any way they want, and they can contract for federal activities uh, all the way up to the decision-making document itself. Now, I worked for an agency that had a lot of construction projects on reservations, and most often tribes would contract for that project. They would take it over. They would um, prepare the construction designs. You know, they hired the engineers and all that. And they would also take on, to a certain extent, compliance with the National Environmental Policy Act and uh, Section 106. And my job in most instances was to provide them and help them, technical assistance to them and, you know, help them comply with those laws. And in doing so... um, they, uh, several of them used that, those programs to establish cult, their own cultural resource management programs. Mm-hmm. So it's another way for tribes to get involved in, you know, directly involved in cultural resources and, and receive some funding. So, but it's, it's one that, again, it depends on how much federal funding is available for projects in Indian country. But it's interesting to deal in, the, in that uh, arena with respect to cultural resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess one of the uh, questions that I want to ask, and I think the audience is very interested in, is where we stand in terms of federal archaeology programs going forward in, for lack of a better rubric, the age of Trump. What do you see going on in the near term? Well, I'm going to date myself. I'm going to go back here. I'm going to date myself. I entered federal service um in, uh, under Reagan, and uh, I entered federal service about six months after James Watt resigned, and I'm always sorry I never had the chance to work for him. Uh, he was the <laughs> Secretary of Interior at that time, and his aim was to do away with any regulation whatsoever. It was right, all you know, drill, baby drill, so to speak. Right. And um, there was a lot of trepidation at that time about 
this, you know, whether National Historic Preservation would survive, and it has. Um, like I say, it's, it's undergone 11 amendments in its history. Um, each time it's, it, to my pers- in my perspective, each time has, has strengthened the law and, and made it um, more responsive. I suspect there will be an attack on it. Or, um, I suspect that um, the administration may address it. I think the administration is more after uh, higher profile laws and agencies, you know, such as EPA, the, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Um, those have always been, seem to be Repu- Republican sticking points more so than, than NEPA or NHPA. There's probably uh, probably going to be a movement to streamline uh, compliance. I think that it can be improved. Um, I'm not sure how. I, well, I've got my thoughts on it, but I'm, I'm keeping those to myself at the time at this moment. But you know, every every law can there is there is no perfect law, so every law can be improved. Um, but we'll see going forward. I, I but I, I think there's there's Changes uh, ancillary to, to cultural resource management, particularly in, in technology, such as the use of drones, um, oh, m- more investigative techniques, you know, using technology in more investigative techniques, uh, photogrammetry and things like that, uh, LIDAR, um, that I think American archaeologists are just now beginning to appreciate um, I've worked in overseas and, and have a, co- a lot of contact with European archaeologists, and they seem to be ahead of us in terms of applying technology, new technology, the management of, of resources. And I think if we can incorporate that, those, this new technology, that will go a long way towards speeding up the compliance process itself. And I think it will make it more um, responsive to the general public's concerns and make it more available to the general public. So I tend to be an optimistic person. Um, I'm, I think it will survive. It survived 50 years. I mean, if it can survive Reagan and James Watt, it can survive Trump. Um, and, and that's, you know... Like I say, I'm an optimistic person. I'm not saying it's not going to change, but I, th- I think it'll still be around. There's too much. There's too much interest in in our heritage. Right. I mean, even I Laura Bush that. had her Preserve America program. So, mm-hmm. um, and George Bush was, you know, came out of the oil industry. So, um, you know, uh, there is that interest out there. I.e., your show, for instance. So. Well, thank you. Uh, but I think you're right. Uh, we certainly know, and, and again, this is a question that I asked uh, one of our colleagues a couple of weeks ago. Um, there is this this concept that, and you touched on it just now, about streamlining the procedures, streamlining the process. Uh, what about the bureaucracy? How easy is it, and, and it's almost a rhetorical question, how easy is it to mess with the bureaucracy and, 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 and to make it a little bit more efficient? I think that in and of itself can sort of be a double-edged sword insofar as the bureaucracy itself may shield dismemberment of the programs. On the other hand, it might also impede efficiency. Well, if you look at it historically, once a federal agency is established, it's really hard to get rid of them. That's what I'm saying. So the bureaucracy, yeah. in a sense, is not going anywhere. And, yeah, the, la- uh, the last one I can think of related to cultural resources was Heritage Recreation and Conservation Service, Hookers, as right. they, the acronym went. 
but uh, that was short-lived. But, you know, that, that was one agency that they managed to get rid of, or they subsumed it into the Park Service. Um, and uh, as you recall, there was also an assault on the Advisory Council for Historic Preservation. Yeah. Well, they did away with the Denver office, and that actually um, was a more active office than the Washington office. That's right. And that slowed yep. up the process. The other thing you have to consider is that um, there's always a push to downsize the government. And as, you know, the more and more of, of people that have been in, in more and more federal archaeologists are reaching, such as me, are reaching the age of retirement. And agencies are, are either not backfilling behind it or are slow in backfilling. The right. other problem is that most agencies, when an individual, there's no transition an individual leave will leave a post, and then they will advertise for a new person to come in. There's no there's no transition. There's no mentoring. There's no training of the of the new person, or very seldom. Um, and so you have a lot of people now entering federal service that, um, for better or for worse, probably are not coming in with the the training they need or the experience they right. need. Right. Um, it is no. It is a process of on-the-job training. That's you know when I entered federal service, it was you know I learned a lot on the job. But you have to know, you know, most archaeologists are there as technical advisors, and they're supposed to provide technical assistance to their managers in in complying with the laws. The long and the and short of it. And on that note, so. we're going to have to conclude our program. We want to thank uh, Dr. Kimball Banks for uh, giving us his time and providing his insight on federal archaeology generally and uh, the trajectories of the archaeological preservation world in the age of Trump. And we will follow up with this program with several others in the weeks to come. And I want to thank you, Kimball, for participating in the program. And uh, we will s listen to uh, all of you and uh, develop a couple of more programs along these lines in the f coming weeks. Thanks very much, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.